David said he was glad when they said, let's go to the house of the Lord. And it is a thing to be glad about. We come here to fellowship with one another, fellowship with the saints, worship our Lord, and be reminded of his goodness towards us. And uh, so I trust that is your heart this morning. If you have your Bible, uh, our text is found in John chapter number 3 this morning. You can be finding your place, John 3. So nice, the turning of pages. And I want to begin reading in verse um, number 13. We're going to look at uh, verse 16 this morning uh, to 21, but I want to begin our reading in verse 13. The Bible says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses, was, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believeth in him... Sorry, that's a King James I'm thinking in my mind. <laughs> let, me, let me go back Going back to my childhood. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever, that whoever I'm not going to make it through this morning, am I? <clears throat> whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. Well, that is God's holy and infallible inspired word. Amen. May he bless the reading of it to us. I come across a story this week of an experience of D.L. Moody that I thought I'd share with you this morning. While he was preaching overseas, he ran into a young man who had aspirations of coming to America to visit and D.L. Moody just, I don't know if it was a reflex, said, well, well, great, if you ever find yourself in Chicago, look me up. Come visit and I'll let you preach. It's kind of like one of those things, uh, call me sometime, we'll get together, and which you know you, you really hope they don't call, you didn't mean it, and, uh, but nevertheless, D.L. Moody got himself in a situation because a young man was a very, um, a very bold guy and uh, some time had went by and he sent, him a, he sent him a note from New York saying, just arrived in New York, will be at church on Sunday in Chicago. Well, Moody was in some sort of predicament whether he was going to be a man of his word or not. And so after some debate and discussion with his church leaders, he decided since he was going out of town, he would let the guy preach just this once and kind of see how he did. And, and he would be gone for the week anyway. I guess he'd pick up the pieces if it fell apart. I don't know. Well, when he come back, he asked his wife, and he, he asked her how the, how the young man did. How, how did the sermon go? How was the church? And she said it, he he did very well. One account says he preached much better than you. 
wives are meant for your humility, <laughs> keep you closer to the Lord and in prayer. Another account says he preached much different than you. Maybe really what she said, I don't know. And he says, how so? And she said, well, he's telling sinners that God loves them. Uh, and Moody's response was shocking. That's not true. Um, and so he decided he would go hear the man for himself who had preached John 3.16 throughout the week. And as he began to preach that evening, he told the congregation, my text is uh, found in John chapter number 3 and began preaching John 3.16. It is remarkable, uh, as Moody reflects back on that sermon uh, and his knee-jerk reaction of saying it's not true that God loves sinners, uh, he said this, he preached a most extraordinary sermon from that verse, I never knew up to that time that God loved us so much. This heart of mine began to thaw out. I could not keep back the tears. It was like news from a far country. I drank it in. John 3.16, as you know here this morning, has been printed on signs, billboards, bumper stickers, coffee cups. It has been the talk of controversy and sporting events that's been broadcasted throughout the world. It has been shared in emails and letters, handwritten. They still do that today. It has been offered as a succinct description of the gospel, and rightfully so, as one of the reformers had said, it is the gospel miniature. Having all the essence and all the parts, all of the, uh, all of the thrust of what the gospel is contained in this one brief verse. It is here we are told about the motive of God and his motive for salvation. We're commanded and, and reminded of the cost of our salvation and commanded in response to it. It is here that we are brought back to this glorious truth that God so loved the world. And that is our topic this morning. It is here that we're being reminded of the one fact. At first, I want us to note, and that is God as being the architect of our deliverance. It is God's plan. It is his activity, his desire, which... We are considering this morning that gives us the ability to hope. He is the initiator, if you could say it that way, of our forgiveness, of our healing, of our redemption. And it's worth noting that because religion in some ways and self-righteousness, which would have been common to Nicodemus and the Pharisees, wanted us to see or, or it tempts us to see that salvation at least whatever God's part is is responsive to what you and I do and yet here we're brought into the terms of that it is God who is at the center of attention it is God who is doing the sending he was doing the planning planning he was the one who gave salvation is always to be reminded God's movement towards us in eternity past, in historical settings, and even in our own salvation story as it's personally applied. That is the foundation of our praise and security. What God offers to us here, conveyed in John 3.16, is not a knockoff. It's not like one of the things, it's got the name brand, but it was made somewhere else, and, and it doesn't hold up to the standard. 
In fact, what we find is man's religion and the world's and the world's pursuits are are man's imitation, man's promise of how we might be saved, how we might be delivered, and those promises never hold up. It is here that we consider not just what God has done for us in intricate detail, though it is conveyed for us in the passage, but he first sets us to consider the great motive of God's salvation. Look at it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now we might ask the question this morning, why did God go about to save humanity? Why get involved and all mixed up in redeeming a rebellious people? We'll consider that a little bit more in just a little bit. To which most of us, many of us might answer, he did it for his own glory. He did it to glorify himself. That would be absolutely true, wouldn't it? There's no greater aim in life and no greater glory than the glory of God himself, the eternal one. And in fact, as you find in Romans and many other places, as Paul describes the working of salvation, he says it's done in such a way that God alone is glorified. And we worship and praise him and not boast in our own achievements. But that isn't the motive that he gives to us here. As absolutely true as it is and as amiable of a goal that is for our own lives to live for the glory of God. And I believe the Westminster is right when it says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that causes us to excel and to live for a higher purpose glorifying the Trinity. Yet here he describes his motive. Why did God go about all of this? It's for his love's sake. Because the Bible says God loved. Love is the great motivation. And it should be no surprise to us that the same writer in 1 John would tell us that God is love. Now that may be staggering To some of you, as it was through the lens of the second century preacher and theologian who could not imagine the God of the Bible, especially the God of the Old Testament, being associated with the motive of love. In fact, he hated him, despising, thinking him being some sort of vengeful deity, petty and judgmental, cruel and hard, And he tried with all of his might to rip from any documents, New Testament writings, any reference to the God of the Old Testament. Now, we may not go to that extreme, but there is, in in some ways, when we read the Old Testament, we kind of think that God went through anger management when he got to the New Testament. We begin reading John 3.16, something happened. In fact, we stand much like Marcion, who was blinded to the love of God throughout all of the word of God. Marcion proved not only that he did not know God, but that he did not know the Son, the one whom the Father sent. And and because it's important to see the consistency in the nature of God, I'm just going to give you two references in the Old Testament. 
two accounts, and there's many more you could say, but the first is found in Genesis in Adam and Eve. Creatures that were created to reflect the glory of God and and to exercise dominion over creation, he created perfectly, placing them in a garden as, uh, as rulers over his creation. They reject God. They reject his law. They reject his rule. They submerge all of creation into chaos and decay. By the rebellion against God and their desire to be equal with God, they brought about the curse which you and I are living under. How does God respond? Well, true, he pronounces curses over them, repercussions for their actions. That is true. He kicks them out of the garden. But the the mercy that's seen and the grace of God is seen that in their nakedness, he would slaughter an animal and clothe them, cover their shamefulness. Instead of swift justice and judgment, God acts in love towards his creation. We see another scene in the book of Exodus. As the children of Israel, it's not even that they have failed to enter into the promised land and to capture the nations. They have failed to make it to the border of the promised land. They can't even walk with God halfway there. And then they make a golden calf and they said, this is your God, O Israel. And they bow down and worship him and having a party and celebrating. And yet in that moment is when God reveals himself to Moses on the Mount Sinai in the words like this found in Exodus 34, 8, that I am the Lord, the Lord merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Dear friends, the love of God or God's ability to love should not shock us. He didn't gain the ability to love when he created something. He has always been loving the Son from eternity past. The ability for God's love should not shock us. The depth and generosity and the benefactors of God's love should amaze us. That's what's so startling about John 3.16. Consider God's love here in several different ways I want to share with you this morning. First, his love is unconditional. The source of God's love is not found in the object. It's not found in the person. Now, pride and inflated ego might suggest that God's love for us is due to our lovability. After all, we might say God loves us and I love us. And, of course, he thinks I'm great because, after all, I'm great. And that is kind of funny for us to say it out loud, but that's exactly what religion tries to promote, that if we do enough things and we, we present ourselves in enough good light, then, after all, God will come down and be amazed by us, and then we will have earned that kind of love. God doesn't love on that same level that we love. Reciprocal. Waiting for us to love him and then then we might love him in return. In fact, what we found in 1 John 4 is that love is rooted in God himself. The divine motive for love is, 
is in him. He is the source. He is the standard, the highest expression, possessor of all love. Our, our ability to love is because God is love. Not that he is a not that he has a feeling or that he has only love or that we dissect him in that kind of way. But love's fullest expression is perfected in him. He is love. He further clarifies that the source of God's love is found in him and not in us. And, and I want to say that that is something we should rejoice in. We'll see in just a moment but later on in chapter number four, he says, in this is love. Now here, let me, what he's saying is, let me, let me lay it out for you uh, in case you are not picking up what I'm saying here. So John begins to write, this is love. It's defined for us. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the perpetuation of our sins. His love is not in response to our love. It's not in waiting and, and, and holding out until you and I come to a place where, you know, we kind of think God is pretty great. Maybe we'll call him up and, and we'll go hang out sometime. Now, the fact is, love in its fullest expression is that his love is directed, sent, given, displayed towards us first. To further press this home... Paul writes, chapter number 5 of Romans, because what God saw in us was not you and I being good. He did not send his son into the world because we were necessarily redeemable in the sense that we were lovable, something, something worthy in us in that case. Because the Bible says God shows his love, he declares it, demonstrates it for us that while we were still sinners. John 3.16 is a message of God's unconditional love to a world that is still at rebellion against him. God's plan, his, his initiation, his, his program is being played out and given to us while we were at odds with him. Not at odds in a peaceful manner. We were continually violating the law of God. His, his rules and his holiness attributing his glory to wood and stone and rocks and whatever else we could imagine. Yet it is in this way God extends and gives his love towards us. We were actively suppressing the truth and exchanging the glory of God for a lie, disobeying God. And yet we're confronted with such a profound message that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God's love through Christ is unconditional. But I want you to notice also that God's love is provisional or it's active. You see that in the text, don't you? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Many of you may have the same experience that I have. Uh, my grandfather, neither one as far as I can remember, have ever said, I love you. Maybe they did when I was a child, when children are lovable, you know, when they're babies and they goo and awe. Especially as grandparents, you can hand them back off to their parents to clean them up. I'm waiting on that part. A couple years, maybe. Does that mean they didn't love me? 
I hope, hope not. I kind of think that that generation considered love not in empty words, not in the way we continually say it over and over as if we need verbal affirmation. There is a, a goodness and necessity in verbal affirmation. We should affirm these things, but, but the lights were on. You could turn the faucet and water would come out. There was heat in the wintertime. Up here it's life or death situation, isn't it? Love was seen not just in saying something, but in the, in the way one lived one's life and carried out his responsibilities and took care of those who were under his care. It was shown, not just said. So it's easy to say, I love you. But what does it mean when you do not prove it? As a father, you don't care for your children. Or as a husband, you don't care for your wife. Uh, you could tell her you love her all you want, but the love is empty. It's, it's meaningless. It's just words. It's, it's meant to be proven. It's an action. It's a state of mind. There's affection and, and feelings and all that stuff. It's kind of confusing at times. You don't know what's coming or going. But, but at the end of the day, it's a motivation to cause us to live a certain way and act. God does not just say up in heaven, I love you and I hope you make it and be great to spend eternity with you. The Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave, he acted, he, he lived out and acted in that manner. He chose of his own free will and volition, motivated by his own love to act in a way of compassion and pity towards us. We know that in Romans 5, we already alluded to that in verse number 8, that he loved us, displaying it, he showed it, he manifested it. How did he do that in giving his son on the cross for sinners? It is love proved. But notice not only is it provisional, it is exceptional and it is costly. For God loved this world, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. I kept tripping up with the King James in my mind. That's what I remember. Grew up as a kid. He gave his only begotten son. You ever thought of that? And of all that you could give, think of the value in that, in that sending his son into the world. No other being, no other thing or being in all of existence had such value and such worthiness as the son of God, eternally beheld by the father from eternity past in continual unbroken fellowship with the Father, one beholding one and one the other face to face, John 1. The one which angels stood and, or, or flew around covering their face and crying out continually, holy, holy, holy is he who sits on the throne. There's no one like him. No one of his magnitude, his, his glory which fills the heavens. And it is this son which he has given to us, for us. 
the creator of the universe and solar system, the majestic one, the one full of grace and truth. He gives him to us. What a cost. Because in giving, he doesn't just say he's giving him to us to to live with us, essentially at first. The giving here is specific, isn't it? It's, It's pointed to something else. And because of the value of the son, because of how majestic and how mighty he is, this, this statement of him giving is so, so enormously hard to, to contemplate. He gave him to, to be the propitiation for our sins. He's speaking here of the humiliation of Jesus, not just in coming as a servant, though he did come as a servant, but he came, the holy one, the sinless one, Dwelling in divine beauty and perfection, moral perfectness, unstained, unspotted by the filth of this world, by the guilt and shame that you that's haunted you. Multiply the sin and the consequence in your own life. Multiply that indefinitely and think of what it would have been like there at Calvary as Christ was bruised for our transgression, crushed for our iniquities. It was by his stripes that we are healed. God gave his son such a costly gift that he would be crushed and marred with our unrighteousness, that he would give his life just pointing us back to that serpent that was lifted up in the wilderness so the Son of Man would be lifted up on the cross of Calvary. And it would be there that the Son of God, the the Holy One, would be given to the jeers of the scoffers. He trusted in God. Let's see if God will save him. To the mouths of the blasphemers, the one who has always loved his father's name and always had honored his father. And now the blasphemers given to the traitors and the Romans, given to sinful men. And and if that were not enough, the Bible tells us that it is in this moment that he himself was given over to the very wrath of God for the sin and the iniquity that you and I have occurred. It was due us. Dear friends, I would remind you again, salvation is a free gift to be sure. Free offer of the gospel, but it is by no means a cheap one. No wonder there's such a a heavy warning in the book of Hebrews about trampling over the blood of Christ and counting it with disdain. What a glorious act of love. What a costly demonstration of the love of Christ. Who for? Who for? Us. Mankind. Men and women and children. I was thinking of the chorus of that song, Yet not I but Christ in me. Or not the chorus but the opening verse of that. What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. 
He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. Praise God. Praise God. But notice with me again, chapter 3, verse 16, as we consider the promise of God's love. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Just as God's love is costly, it's provisional, and it's unmerited, so the promise of God should be seen in the sense that it is without discrimination. It is God who loved the world, the cosmos, the universe, his creation, mankind. It is his, it is his desire and his love for his creation, his, his declaration to every tongue, tribe, and nation without discrimination to people of every sort of past. Every sort of mess, every sort of economic status, and every kind of ethnicity, the love of God is declared for mankind. In fact, we find later on in Jesus' words, as he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the only hope for mankind without discrimination. There is no other way. And what does he promise here? Well, he promises us eternal life, doesn't he? That he gave in this way such a costly gift that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Uh, It's seen in two ways here, both the affirmative we what we will not have and what we do have it's the gospel promise what we are delivered from and what we have received what we are delivered to and the first of this is the idea of perishing he means for us to understand here in john 3:16 that you and i are through the display of god's love through the giving of his son in jesus christ we are delivered from this kind of condemnation that the world is under. It's the language he uses right after that, isn't he? He speaks about being condemned. Verse number 17, the world is condemned already. And so here he says, and he's conveying that we're being rescued from some kind of trouble, some kind of sorrow or consequence of action, some kind of danger which awaits us. We know the Bible, as we see the fullness of it laid open for us, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And just to remind you that this is not a New Testament teaching, back in Ezekiel chapter 18, he tells us plainly and clearly that the soul that sins shall die. What Paul says in Romans, and you and I have experienced in our own life, we're all guilty. We all stand condemned because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This doom is something that you and I, each of us, all of us share in. God has given us his son to save us. 
And that's very important to understand. And it's a reminder how the world has cheapened the gospel message in our day. God's salvation is so that you can have your best life now. Or something other like that. So you can be successful. Beautiful or liked or whatever. Now God sent his son into the world chiefly and and, and ultimately to deliver us from damnation. From trouble, from the consequences of sin, to be snatched from the flames of hell itself, to be saved from death. And it's not a pleasant thought, but there's no need to downplay it. God is, is through Christ redeeming people, and that redemption is a rescue from condemnation. And when we say from death itself, we do not mean a ceasing to exist. Because the Bible tells us in Hebrews, it is once appointed unto man to die, but after this, the judgment. I know the church has in one point began teaching annihilation. Basically, those who don't follow God or trust in Christ, and they just cease to be eternal nothingness, and they just cease to be. The Bible doesn't teach that. That's atheism. That's that hope and anticipation. I can live this life any way I want. I can reject God and his offer of goodness and, and grace in Jesus. And, and it'll just, things will just end. It's, this is all there is. And he says, the Bible says that's not the case. Because we will all stand before God and give an account for the lives we've lived. Justice will have its final say. And we will be cast out in what he calls in Revelation the second death. Which is eternal separation from God in utter darkness and torment without any rest. A ceaselessness. Never ceasing, rather. God has come to save us from perishing. He has come to deliver us from that fate and from that end. It's the gospel message. And Jesus, doesn't he speak in one place? Who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? We've all sinned and violated God's law. We've all borne our own condemnation. And we're all waiting the judgment to stand before God to to give an account for that. And, And here in the gospel, the good news is that in the midst of that condition, Christ has come to redeem you, rescue you from that. So that we would have everlasting life. Delivered from condemnation. That in itself is a reminder of freedom and a new lease on life. But it's more than existing for a very, very long time. It speaks not to the reality of existence, but the kind of existence Christ gives to us in the gospel. It was brought up in our men's Bible study and fitting here. Turn with me to John chapter number 17.
As Jesus defines eternal life for us, John chapter 17, when Jesus had spoken these words, verse number one, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that he may glorify you since you had given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom you had given him. You have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This reason he has glorified him on earth, having accomplished the work that he gave him to do. Here, John is promising us, in the gospel, God is promising us that those who believe and turn to Christ will be giving everlasting life. This this knowledge and unbreakable fellowship with the Father and the Son. So he can tell, he can tell in John chapter number 11, women grieving over Martha, grieving over her brother that's dead. He says, and he speaks about those who live and believe will never die. It doesn't mean that their bodies will never cease, tower out and wear out and be put in the ground. But he means that they themselves, like Paul's word, is to be absent from the body, is to to see and understand fully that unbreakable fellowship we have been given with Christ and with the Trinity. God has delivered us from the wrath of God, from his wrath upon our sinfulness in Christ who became sin so that we might have his righteousness and be be in fellowship with him, be in his presence. Heaven isn't just about being in a mansion, although that's fun to sing about in some of those southern gospel songs. You know, some of you do that when you're by yourself in a car. It's about being in the presence of God. Dwelling with God for all eternity in your presence is fullness of joy. Life and goodness that is given to us, that's promised to us because God loved the world and gave his only begotten son. I want you to notice Not only do you see this great promise, the great response given to us here in verse number 16 as well. How can that be our hope? How can that be your hope? God loves unconditional. His provision has provided for us salvation. His cost was great. Without distinction or without discrimination. And then here, even in this verse, he reminds us of the gospel call, doesn't he? It is a promise to those who believe in him. To those who believe in him. You see the same thing back in verse 15. It's almost a restatement. Or 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him, may have eternal life. Those who believe in him. The gift of salvation, the deliverance from condemnation, the rescue is, is given. And it's, it's, isn't that amazing? What must I do to be saved? The guy comes to Jesus. 
Jesus says, what does the law say? He names off a few things. He says, well, I've done all that. What else lacked there? He says, go sell everything you got and give to the poor and come and follow me. Well, that's a good reminder that the law was standing against him and he could not meet its requirements. And God in his gracious mercy and his love towards us extends to us that life-saving gift of Christ to those who believe in him. How do you have confidence of this? Well, are you believing in him? Who would, who would ever reject this? I mean, isn't this kind of crazy to turn down? It brings us to a point of just why would you ever turn down the gift of everlasting life? No condemnation. And he tells us in the passage why it happens every day, maybe even with you here this morning. Because men love darkness rather than light. They love their sins more than they love God. He said in verse number 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. His, Jesus walking among them was a gift of God's grace to rescue. And whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe him is a condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. He has rejected the only means of salvation. There is no help beyond Christ. That's what Jesus is saying. In rejecting that, there is no other door. There is no other way. There is no plan B for you. Either we receive the gift of God's grace and his love towards us, or we reject it. And in rejecting it, we bear our condemnation, rightfully so. Verse number 19, and this judgment, this is the judgment, that light has come into the world and people. Notice this, God loves, verse 16, the world and gives his only begotten son so that we may live. Yet there's many who love here in verse number 19, but what they love is darkness rather than light. Because their works were evil. Now that's true of Jesus' day and the people of his day. They, they didn't want to acknowledge Jesus rose from the dead. They didn't want to acknowledge him as a Messiah. But how many people in our current day is holding on to their sinfulness, holding on to their own ways, holding on to their own plans and their own... And all of that. Rejecting Christ because they love their sinfulness. And if it isn't their sin, they love the fact that they can at least somewhat conceal it. Because if you come to the light, it's shown. It's exposed. Verse number 20, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works are being carried out in God. And what does he do that is true? Well, he believes, he receives, he comes to the Son, believing in him. Well, there is a great response. It is interesting sometimes as you consider the implications or application of any passage of Scripture. And so I I just want to give you three things I, I, I want you to take home and kind of chew on, meditate on this morning that I think flow from this passage and the first of which is simple 
and that is believe. This is the gospel message that God loved the world and gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Then the command is clear. The the call, the response is clear. We respond to his love towards us and that response is believe. Believe. I worked with a a gentleman. His father was a... uh, his father was a preacher. He worked for me. He was his second cousin far removed. I don't know how you do all that second, third cousin stuff. He was from Kentucky. <laughs> I wanted to say West Virginia, but that, that would be lying in the pulpit. <laughs> and, and he said, you know, I just don't know if God's real. <laughs> I told him, I said, you ought to pray and say, God, sh- reveal yourself to me. He says, I don't want to do that. I said, why not? He's like, I'm afraid what I happen. So the issue isn't about the existence of God. And his confusion wasn't about the gospel. His resistance was about his own rebellious heart and unwilling to submit himself to the Lord God of heaven. Over and over that is the case. Because believe isn't just knowing the facts. It is willing to submit yourself, to humble yourself before God and receive the mercy that he offers to you. And you know what we do? We lie to ourselves. And we say, it isn't as bad as it looks. Or maybe it isn't true at all. Maybe my case is different from somebody else's case or or, or my plans are a little better than the, than the people, all the generations that come before me. And yet at the end of the day, the Bible's still clear that it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. The only hope we have is found in Christ now. That's why the writer writes in Hebrews that today is the day of salvation. Now is the appointed time. Tomorrow is the devil's day. Believe. And I would say if you've done that, continue to believe. Because the gospel doesn't change is still the power of God into salvation. But secondly, not only the first implication is the call to believe, but the second I think is very important for us to put our faith and trust in Christ, and that is work it out in your own mind and hearts. What do I mean by that? I mean, think through what God has done for you in Christ. Lay the, ple- lay the pieces out and consider what great expression of love God has given to us. He, in Romans 8, he's, he says that, that if he gave such a bold expression of love into redeeming us, so sacrificially and redeeming us, then will he act towards us indifferently after we're already saved? Will he somehow at some point just come along and abandon us and not meet our needs? What more could he give to declare, I love you, than Jesus Christ? That's why Paul can finish Romans 8, 35 and 39. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Long list. Summarize it. Nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That should be our meditation. Continually reminding us that God's love is just his act of redeeming us. It's not just some emotionless, um, mechanical act. He acted towards us in, in goodness and pity and compassion and he loved us. 
when we were unlovable. (laughs) How much more will he not love us when he is indwelling us and sanctifying us through the power of his spirit and word? But thirdly, and when he calls us his son, you can put that in there too. But thirdly, let me say this in closing. It's the implication that here as we stand amazed at God's love for us, that we are instructed how we are to love one another. That is our motivation to care for, maintain unity, and to forgive one another and care for one another and pray for one another and and encourage one another is found not in our likability with each other, but in, in, in God's amazing, gracious act of love towards us. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself for it. John, where he says to the whole church, here in his love, not that you love God, but that he loved us and gave him his son to be a propitiation for our sins. If God so loved us in this manner, he goes on to say, so ought you to love who? God's love and the experience of that love in our life calls us to a higher calling as we walk with one another. And may the spirit of God give you wisdom. How to flesh that out in your life. Bow with me for a word of prayer. I don't know how the Lord has spoken to you this morning. But I would just encourage you to respond with obedience. If you don't know who he is. If you've never put your faith in him. If you've never trusted in him. Today is the day of salvation. I would love to speak to you after the service. And you can call on him now. That's such a simple message, isn't it? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that you might not perish but have everlasting life. And dear Christian, how we need, our, uh, how we need that reminder to raise us out of the, the, the decay of this world and to be again in awe of how great a Savior we have and how great of a Father Lord, we thank you for your grace to us. We cannot put into words the depth and width and breadth and height of your love for us in Christ. Lord, we just pray that you would help us to grow whatever measure we can as we consider this great passage. In Jesus' name, amen.